This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, we had a chat with Ben Eltham about federal politics. Then we spoke with film director Jennifer Pedham about her new film, Mountain, which is showing at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Then we had a chat with Professor Ray Geisha from the University of Melbourne about his lecture series, The Intelligentsia in the Age of Trump, as well as his own lecture, Truth and Truthfulness in the Age of Trump. And then finally, we spoke with Dr. Isabel Crombie, who is the Assistant Director at the National Gallery of Victoria and the co-curator of a new exhibition called Brave New World. You are listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins and this is 3RRFM. So I'm talking now with Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me regularly to talk federal politics. Hi, Ben. Good morning. How are you, Amy? I'm pretty good. Feeling quite chipper after a nice cup of coffee. Yeah, great. Yeah. Have you had yours yet? No. No, No, I'm fanging for one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we better better keep you in a good mood. <laughs> Just keep it short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. snappy. Uh, and uh, I must say, Ben's wearing his lion's scarf, so he's um, really tuning up the uh, AFL today. I, I am um, revealing my AFL club here, which is yes. the Brisbane Lions. Which I also reveal is my club, um, my chosen adult club. I grew up with Geelong Cats, which I cannot um, really renounce, but uh, but I chose the Lions. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up with Essendon, but um, when I, I was living in Brisbane, well, I grew up in Brisbane, in yeah. fact, so when they got their team together in the 90s, I decided to switch over. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's such such a funny combo to have Fitzroy and Brisbane really still together, that kind of legacy. Yes, yeah, so I, I don't think it was the most harmonious of marriages. Uh, <laughs> but the way I Not like to really. think of it is, you know, there's a Brunswick Street in Fitzroy and there's a Brunswick Street in Fortitude Valley. Ah. And, you know, that, that's, there's a kind of synergy there. I did not know that. Totally makes sense now. That's the AFL logic. <laughs> That's my line and I'm sticking Excellent. to it. Excellent. Now, Ben, um, there's been a few things happened uh, in the past week with federal politics. First, I want to talk just briefly about the transcript that came out of the Donald Trump and Malcolm Turnbull phone call, which was, you know, a bit interesting um, a few months ago because there was this whole, oh, did Trump hang up on Turnbull and, you know, is it an embarrassment? And it was really around this issue of asylum seekers and the deal that was made between Barack Obama and the Australian government, obviously before he left office, uh, to take or at least process and then take some of the um, refugees from uh, Australia that are currently being held in in detention and obviously they've been processing them at the moment. But what uh, did this transcript reveal? Was there anything new in terms of the content or did it further our understanding at all? Because... um, I found the the one thing that I thought was interesting, but I'm keen on your thoughts, Ben, was that he uh, Malcolm Turnbull, when asked by Donald Trump, why aren't you taking them? Uh, you know, are these people going to pose a safety risk? Malcolm Turnbull said, no, no, of course they're not. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously, here. They're economic migrants, um, or most of them are, and therefore they don't pose any risk at all. These are good people. Yeah, I mean, I think for me it didn't reveal anything new, but it certainly sort of lifted the veil on the cynicism of Australia's immigration policies, which are bipartisan policies really of cruelty and deception. 
And the cruelty bit is exactly the bit that you're talking about there with Turnbull, where we know that these asylum seekers, you know, pose no threat to Australia's safety and that we're really incarcerating them in a foreign prison for the purposes of deterrence, to deter other people from trying to come to Australia. Now, the government claims that that's to stop people getting on boats and to stop them from drowning at sea, but uh, there's also, I think, a, a very high degree of cynicism in, in the policy here. And, you know, and we, we saw a little bit of what Malcolm Turnbull actually thinks in the extraordinary transcript of that leaked conversation. Indeed, and it's also interesting that, uh, I mean, when you think about it, people are real still they're still getting on boats we're just not hearing about them or seeing them and they're being turned back so really that's the process of deterrence is physically moving them around i mean that's correct how effective is something like offshore detention in the with the aim that they have obviously it's very detrimental in every way but can you even really argue that it is effective in the way that they're intending it to be I think you can argue that on a certain level it has been effective in terms of stopping the very large number of boats that were coming in, say, 2011, Um, you know, and there was obviously a a loss of life at sea associated with that. Uh, But, you know, as I always say in the asylum seeker debate, you know, that has then been used, that, that rationale has then been used to justify the unjustifiable, you know, locking up innocent people without charge or trial in a jail um, where people are dying. And, you know, so at some point you have to ask the question, you know, is it really worth it? Uh, And it's a pretty weird kind of bastard utilitarianism that says you've got to inflict horrible cruelty on people um, in order to protect other people entirely. You know, it's a Mm. kind of form of collective punishment, really. Mm. And... um Relating to this, uh, we found out that an Iranian asylum seeker has died on Manus Island, um, and uh, and that was in the Larengau sorry township there. And obviously, we're seeing Manus very progressively closed down as it's um, been deemed by the Supreme Court in in that country to be illegal. Um, so you know that the asylum seekers are now being moved into the main population which they're obviously fearful for their safety what do we know about this particular incident at the moment ben Uh, we don't know a whole lot Um, i don't believe the name of uh, the person has been released Uh, it appears to be a suicide Uh, but you know until the investigation continues and we we get some concrete information that's that's about as much as we can say Mm. Well, we do have um, an asylum seeker there who's well known to, I, I guess, many asylum seeker advocates, um, Beruz Bouchani, who um, knew the man and and did say that he had been um, suffering from mental ill health. So that's um, also a concern given that um, he must have been expressing that he was uh, unhappy. Well, of course, people are suffering from mental health problems. I mean, they're being locked up. Mm. Um, they're incarcerated. Uh, they've been given no control over over their destiny, their own fate. Uh, They're completely at the whim of the Australian and the Papua New Guinean governments. Uh, It's not safe for asylum seekers to enter the broader Papua New Guinea community. Uh, We know this. Uh, It's, it's in fact, very dangerous. There have been many reports of violence against asylum seekers on the island of Manus. 
you know, and more broadly, Papua New Guinea is not a Western developed nation. You know, it's still um, a developing nation with many challenges of its own in terms of unemployment and, and economic growth. So, it, once again, you know, we have to face the fact that Australia has essentially dumped this problem on a foreign country, on a neighbour. Um, and, well, and also who needs the money. Yeah, we're trying to wash our hands of, of it. You know, and, and the, the conversation between Trump and Turnbull shows that, where Turnbull mm. says to Trump, oh, you don't even have to take any of these refugees, just screen them, you know, just go through the motions. Um, make it appear as though you are going to take some of them and, that, and that's all we need, you know, as your friend and ally, Australia. Mm. Is it any wonder Australians have become a little bit cynical when it comes to politics? Uh, I think anyone who's followed the asylum seeker debate over the last 15 years would be highly cynical Mm. and justifiably so. Yeah, indeed. Now, uh, moving to another issue where we've become quite disillusioned and somewhat cynical is the same-sex marriage issue, which um, it's important to talk about because uh, it really has revealed some position or non-position of the coalition, which is (laughs) (laughs) that yesterday they had a very long meeting and discussion uh, in in the party room about whether they would stick to their very important promise, uh, which was brought up or or created and solidified under the Tony Abbott government, which was to hold a plebiscite uh, so that ordinary Australians would compulsorily have to vote to to say whether we wanted same-sex marriage or not. And, uh, gosh... I've never seen a coalition or any party really desperately hang on to a, an election promise, Ben. Yeah, well, considering all the other election promises the coalition broke in 2014, <laughs> um, this is a rather strange one for them to keep. But there you go. It just shows the crippling internal disunity within the Liberal Party on this issue. Uh, I mean, uh, we've talked about this a few weeks now, Amy, haven't we? I mean, the, the Liberal Party is completely split on same-sex marriage. There are a group of moderates who want to just legislate it, want to try and pass a bill in Parliament as soon as they can. There's a group of hardline conservatives uh, who are threatening really to to destroy the government if that were to happen. Mm. And then there's a a large number of MPs who just want the issue to go away. Yeah. Um, And so yesterday they had a very long party room meeting about what to do and they've come up with the decision to do nothing. Basically. Um, Well, only seven really dissented or said that they wanted a free vote. Uh, And so what we ended up with is the first option being to put to the Senate again um, to see if they can vote through and approve a plebiscite, which is very unlikely um, given that the Greens and the Xenophon Party are not going to vote for it. Not going to happen. Exactly. And so then the second option, which they have flagged as their backup, is uh, a postal plebiscite (laughs) because we all love posting things in the mail, especially votes, which won't be compulsory either. Well, look, you know, I mean, I think... They're all, they're all forms of participatory democracy and I think we should be careful not to disparage them. Well, um, but we do have compulsory voting in Australia, Ben, and the idea that, as Matthias Cormann has said, oh, other countries don't have compulsory voting, I think that's a unique feature of Australian democracy that perhaps we should be seeking to uphold if you are going to hang yourself to the democratic 
you know, process, which is the whole point of apparently a plebiscite. Yeah, I mean, it just shows the the mess that the coalition's got themselves into on this issue. I mean, uh, we, we have a parliament to make laws and marriage equality is a law. Uh, it's a law that was passed by the parliament without a plebiscite back in 2004. So it's something that we could fix in the current parliament really basically is the first order of business when the parliament returns. We can't do that because of the politics of the of the Liberal Party and, and that's really what's driving this whole plebiscite issue. And I would just point out as well that the reason that, that many marriage equality advocates and, you know, groups from the the community opposed the plebiscite is they were worried about the fear and the hatred that it would whip up. And I think that's a legitimate fear. Um, and I think we need to take that view seriously. That was certainly the view that swung, you know, the Labor Party and probably the Greens against voting for the plebiscite. It's probably, well, it's the key reason, really, that yeah. we don't want to have a toxic debate that's funded by the government, essentially. Yes, exactly right. Yes. And of course, um, as you rightly point out, the plebiscite would not be binding on the on the MPs. Of course, they can still vote however they want on the floor of the parliament. Mm, yes. So interesting that we got to hear or not. Um, but at least we've got a clarification of the coalition's position now, um, given that it's been back and forth in the media for about a week hearing all of these other dissenting views. I mean, it just look, makes the coalition look weak and disorganised, you know, and I think it further undermines Turnbull's leadership, which is not in great shape, you'd have to say. No, it's not. Um, and Ben, you've written a piece for New Matilda, um, naturally because you're the National Affairs Correspondent. I'm uh, still trying to keep my hand in, Amy, yeah. Yep. <laughs> still writing some stuff from time <laughs> to time. And uh, if anyone wants to quickly check it out, it's called It's the Inequality Stupid. And uh, you do talk about uh, the Hilda data that was just released um, this week. And uh, it's Hilda stands for the Household Income and Labor Dynamics Data, which is a fabulous title. Yeah, it's so exciting when you put it like that. I know, right? Um, but it does talk about something pretty important, which is um, home ownership among young people, um, which, uh, as you reference there, uh, home ownership among 18 to 39-year-olds declined from 36% in 2002 to 25% in 2014. I mean, home ownership is probably one of the largest and clear ev- areas of inequity that exists, at least generationally. What um, did you think uh, the Hilda data revealed that um, either was new or really reinforced our current views on, on this issue? Yeah, so the Hilda report comes out periodically every few years or so. And what's really important about the Hilda data is it's like a big survey, a long-running survey, a longitudinal survey, mm. as they sometimes call it, the, the sort of nerdy types. Um, and it means that they go back to the same people year in, year out and ask them, all right, how much money did you earn? You know, are you owning your own house? What do you think about certain things? Um, and it gives us very, very detailed information that the census doesn't give us. And so that's why it's kind of important. And what the Hilda data this year shows, um, this is going back to 2014, it's taken them a while to crunch it, but it really shows you know, a few things. Firstly, wealth inequality is widening. So uh, the 
the gap between the haves and the have-nots in our society is getting bigger. And what's really driving that is, of course, the property market. So people who own houses are doing quite well for themselves, obviously, as those house prices increase. And people who don't are increasingly locked out of buying a house ever. And in Australian society, where the house is the key investment and often the only form of saving for most households, that's a really big problem. Now, the other thing that the Hilda data shows, which I think is very significant, is that household incomes are actually stagnating or even falling. So the Hilda data says that the average household is now actually earning less than it was in 2009, which is, uh, you know, that's a pretty significant finding, actually. It is, and also um, reflects that obviously wage growth, real wage growth has stagnated and we have not seen that growing. That's right, yeah. So ordinary workers are just not getting pay pay increases. They're not getting a pay rise. Um, And over time, that's actually eroding their household incomes. Um, No wonder they're finding it hard to get into the property market, to pay their electricity bills um, and to keep up with the very rich who are, of course, shooting ahead. Well, it also increases household debt, given that if your wage isn't keeping up with inflation and new, like increasing costs of living, um, naturally, you've got less discretionary income and uh, you can't afford it. Yeah, that's the other thing that it shows. Um, in addition to, you know, home ownership, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, really falling off a cliff for the under 40s, it also, it also showed that those people who were able to, you know, get into the market, buy a house, uh, were heavily indebted, really, really heavily indebted and really not paying off their mortgage at all. Mm. Um, in fact, some of them were going backwards on their mortgage, kind of refinancing and increasing their debt. Um, over time. So you can see that there's a ticking time bomb here, not just economically, but socially, as Australia becomes more unequal. And I think that's really underlies a whole bunch of what's happening in federal politics, where Labor has seized the intellectual agenda for the first time probably in a decade um, with its push on inequality, with the the various policies that Labor's put forward over the last 18 months to two years to try and address inequality. Mm, Yes, it's a smart move, but also the right thing to do. It is, I think, a combination of canny politics, but Mm. also genuine belief. And it's been driven by some pretty smart people in Labor's economic policy team, guys like Andrew Lee, who's a kind of actually a bit of a world expert in inequality as an economist himself. Chris Bowen has done a lot of hard yards here. Um, You've got Jim Chalmers, who's the former chief of staff to Wayne Swan and has kind of carried on a bit of Wayne Swan's kind of crusade on on issues like wealth and income inequality. So Mm. Labor's actually put together a pretty strong suite of policies to try and uh, wind back some of the very, very large tax breaks and policy concessions that make it so much easier for rich people when it comes to things like owning property. Yeah, yeah. Ben, thank you for coming in again to talk about federal politics and these big issues that we face. That's okay, Amy. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. I am pleased and very delighted to be able to speak with the film director herself, uh, Jennifer Pedum. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Very well. That's Very great. Well, well um, it's exciting for us and myself to be able to chat to you about this film, Mountain, um, because 
well, for so many reasons. Um, it seems to be uh, bringing together a beautiful marriage of some amazingly creative people and obviously led by yourself. Um, it's a really interesting for me to see uh, just how like the cinematography by Ren and Ozturk as well as um, others because you've clearly brought a whole range of um, cinematography together as well as your own. Uh, but then also with Richard, uh, sorry, Robert McFarlane writing the um, the script, Willem Dafoe narrating yeah. it, the ACO performing and, and also creating original works for this uh, this movie and that particular footage. Uh, it's just it's a really beautiful combination of talent how did you originally come up with the idea for this film? And um, also just for to give uh, some background to those who aren't familiar, and they may know a film that you did previously, um, and I know you've done many, but this one is quite interesting and similar, um, was Sherpa, which, um, which was also very poignant and did have some beautiful cinematography. But, yeah, first of all, how did you um, come up with this, this concept for the film and then how did you bring everyone together? Yeah, right. Well, actually, it was Richard Tongetti's idea. It was the it was originally brought to me as an idea from Richard. Um, one of my um, dear friends is a cellist in the Australian Chamber Orchestra, so he was, you know, aware of my other filmmaking that I'd, I'd spent a lot of time in filmmaking in mountains and things like that. And Richard was the ACO had, had um, created a work um, a number of years ago called The Reef, which was a, mm. a sort of a surf movie to music which had been really successful. And I think that they were thinking about, well, what next? You know, what would be the next of iteration? And Richard was fascinated with mountains. He spends a lot of time skiing, um, particularly over in Japan. And so they thought, well, why not mountains? And Julian Thompson, the cellist from the Australian Chamber Orchestra, said, ah, oh, you need to talk to my friend Jen Peterman. And so that's how it began. So, um, and really it was as, as broad as that, the brief. It was we want to explore a collaboration about mountains. And, of course, you know, that was immediately interesting to me, partly because I was a huge fan of the Australian Chamber Orchestra. I went to a lot of their concerts. Um, but the idea of exploring musically and visually, you know, my feelings towards mountains um, just felt like a great creative challenge. And, and I'm always, you know, I'm up for kind of any new experience, <laughs> really, and that was one I hadn't had before. So... You know, and in fact, that was before that 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 ha all happened before I made Sherpa. So then I went off and and made Sherpa, and I met this incredible cinematographer. Well, in fact, I'd, I'd found him and and knew that he was the only person I, I really needed to have him on Sherpa. Is um, an American cinematographer called Renan Ozturk, who's just happens to be one of the best climbers in the world as well. And um, and he and I spent a lot of time talking about this project at base camp at Everest and um, he was incredibly keen on the idea as well. He came from a family of classical musicians, um, ironically and so it sort of all slowly started to come together then when I was, um, you know obviously you need to, you know, when you make a film you really need to have something to say and, you know, to talk about mountains, you know, I really had to figure out what it was um, and I was always interested in in the ideas of why some people are prepared to risk themselves, you know, for something that really can't love them back, um, and other people find those people crazy. And I was interested to explore the space between those two things, and as someone who has really experienced that pull 
towards mountains um, in my own life. It was something that I understand, yet I don't understand the, the full extremes that some people go to. So that idea of suffering and why you would do that. Um, so that was something I wanted to explore. And I had read a book probably in my 20s when I was doing a lot of climbing by this wonderful writer, Robert McFarlane, and I thought, look, just on the off chance, you know, maybe I could convince him to be involved because I really had loved his words. And that book was called Mountains of the Mind. And so while I was on the festival circuit with Sherpa, I was um, going to London and I, I kind of looked him up and, um, and you know, reached out and said, can I come down to Cambridge? He works at Cambridge University. And, and he agreed. And so I went down and met him and we just clicked straight away and, and he loved what we were trying to um, achieve. And that's really where the narrative arc then came from the film. It was this idea of how have our feelings towards mountains changed so dramatically in such a short period of time. So he, he calls it the revolution of perception. Mm. So, you know, 300 years ago, the idea of even setting out to climb a mountain would have been considered lunacy, you know. And in that short period of time, things have changed so much. And so that sort of became... The, the sort of story arc of the film. Indeed. And um, you just mentioned there some of what is um, spoken about or narrated at the beginning of the film, which is that mountains were places of peril and not beauty. Um, and the the narrator asks, how have they come to make us so spellbound? And the opening shot or one of the opening um, sequences is a man on the, on the side of a, a mountain and he appears to have no ropes um, or safety equipment whatsoever um is that actually the case it is it's funny a number of people one of my um colleagues said they they went to see it with the orchestra live and his kids said oh daddy that's that's not real that must be cgi (laughs) but it it is completely real and that that climber his um his name is alex honnell he's the he's the famous american free solo climber so he just climbed that crazy rock climb in america el capitan which is one of the most difficult rock climbs and he did it all without rope. So he's, he's, you know, obviously on a whole other level. But, yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it is very real. And Renan shot that footage and he's climbing a, a rock face in Mexico called El Sendero Luminoso, which is the shining path. Yeah. Um, so that is, yeah, that's the kind of, we call that the prelude of the film. Mm. And it really is kind of the extreme, the absolute extreme. Exactly. And we do see some more um, extreme, I guess, ways that humans are interacting with um, the landscape and the mountains um, halfway to three quarters through the film. And I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but just to cover off on some of the historical elements that are brought out, um, it's spoken about the concept of the sublime, uh, which is something that really came about um, in the late 19th century. And we all remember, you know, a famous painting of the man standing on the cliff face looking out into an abyss um, on top of a mountain. And this, all, this concept of the sublime is spoken about in the film. To you, when you were... Um, putting together the film and also giving it a narrative arc and exploring what uh, what it was about and I guess what your position was almost. Um, 
how did you come to it? Was it a collaboration with yourself and Robert? Was it with you and Richard and Robert? Like in terms of determining how you were going to present the human experience with mountains and whether that was, you know, a positive thing, a negative thing, or sometimes both, how did you come to that, um, you know, decision? Yeah, well, I mean, we... (laughs) First of all, we had a lot of conversations about the sublime and that was something that right from the get-go, Richard Tongetti was fascinated by this idea of the sublime. Um, I'm also really interested in that idea of the sublime and, in fact, it was his conversations about the sublime and what is the sublime, what does that concept actually mean that reminded me that it had been explored in beautiful depth in Robert's book, which is one of the things that that triggered me to go and, um, to go and talk to him. And so really from the get-go... This was a multiple-way collaboration. So, you know, I would talk to Robert about, you know, these are the bits in the book that I think, you know, because we obviously, you know, the book is many hundreds of pages long. The, the narration track itself is only about four pages long. It's a very short, very sparse, poetic narration script. And so we had to boil down very complex ideas to their essence. And... You know, and it was very important to me to really honour and reflect that collaboration, you know, in, a mul- in, in the multiple ways that it sort of came together. So if Richard had an idea that he wanted to express musically, he brought a lot of ideas to the table. Um, I then had... I, I sort of see myself in some ways as collating them all, but I had my own feelings that I wanted to express and I, I very much was interested in this idea of the sublime and why why it's just it's something that pulls us you know it's something that draws us that fascinates us it's this kind of the edge of pleasure and terror you know it's this kind of sits this idea that sits on the cusp of pleasure and terror that this idea um of something so majestic that it's terrifying Mm. you know um and so it really came from all of us and i think um and then renard is someone that just lives in that space constantly i mean he's He's either climbing mountains or he's making films in mountains. And so he was a really good yardstick. We all, we all came together in Japan, actually, um, and worked for a, a full week. And, you know, which is a wonderful place to be. We were up in the mountains. It was snowing. And, you know, we would have a draft. We had a draft of the narration script at that point. And Renan would say, yeah, but I don't buy that. As a climber, I don't buy that. And so we would then work the words. And, you know, so we kind of kept it honest to um to you know the authentic experience um of someone who does you know spend a lot of time in the mountains but we you know without being too judgmental i'm always really careful about that so it was a sort of a delicate tightrope of sort of saying well some people do take it too far maybe but you know what is it what is this allure what is this siren song that draws us upwards you know Mm. yeah and that's something that i found came through really strongly was the tension because it did um, oscillate between mountains being uh, a wild place of beauty that um, that used to be largely untouched but have now been almost turned into a bit of a, a plague land or you know, a tourist Playground, destination yeah. yeah for for humans to explore their own um, fascinations and obsessions um, and and interests and even historically, uh, when we were your, the film was talking about Mount Everest, and obviously that's one of the ultimates, or if not the ultimate, um, you know, the narrator says Everest was placed under siege until at last it succumbed. So it's also kind of given um, a bit of a, its own 
person really uh, that these mountains have their own integrity and um, their own selfhood so to speak uh, and that and that humans have almost at times been a bit too invasive yeah and I think look even just the use of that language is very deliberate um, you know when the British first went to Everest it was very it was a full-scale military expedition the leader John Hunt was a military man and he was not of a mountaineering kind of romantic background. There was, you know, there was this kind of previous leadership of the British expeditions that was kind of very romantic and, you know, um, wound up in the literature and all of these kind of things. But this was a full-scale military operation. We will conquer, you know, and we still talk about people conquering Everest. And, you know, of course, the Sherpas don't think about it as conquering. You know, they, they I think they find that idea quite horrific to a mountain that is, you know, their mother goddess of the earth. It, it represents something completely different to them. Whereas to a Western um, kind of, to Westerners really, that you know, and not to everybody, but it is something, it is a place where they sort of go to sort of conquer their their own fears or, or whatever it is that it's the ultimate, it's become the ultimate symbol of, you know, uh, overcoming a hurdle in your life in some ways to prove that, you know, you can overcome any obstacle. Um, mm. And certainly that's what I see, having spent time uh, at various, you know, in Tibet and Nepal um, on Everest over the years, it really has become a place where, you know, people come to climb that mountain and only that mountain. They're not mountaineers. They don't go and climb other mountains. They just come, want to climb Everest, put that on their CV and... And, uh, and go back home again. It's a badge of honour. Yeah, yeah. And it's not for all people at all. Yeah. But somebody once said to me, um, and I love this quote, I think it's quite true, that there are two kinds of people that climb Everest. They're the, they're the dreamers and the, uh, and the egomaniacs. And, and it is quite true. There, is a, there are some you know, young people that have just been caught up in the literature and the ideals and the the romance of those ideas and other people do just come to conquer. Yes, and I know that you have also been a climber yourself and in one of the interviews you've done recently, you mentioned that uh, in terms of altitude, that's something which you um, have dealt with quite well, being up in higher you know, altitude areas at Everest is something that, um, well, that would be quite helpful if you're making films about, about mountains. Uh, from your perspective as a climber, when you're making a film about mountains, what do you think um, you personally put in that that would reflected your experience of mountains and and the films that you've been doing about these mountains yeah i mean look i still don't really think of myself as a climber i have actually done quite a lot of climbing but it was always as a filmmaker and it was really the reason i ended up making films on everest is that i discovered that relatively i still suffer at altitude everybody does but i relatively to you know other people some other people i i seem to be able to process, you know, and handle the altitude reasonably well and still function, which is kind of important when you're needing to work um, up there. But for me, over the years, and particularly, you know, having made Sherpa and, and, you know, some of my early films were exploring the Sherpa point of view of Everest as well. I made a, a piece for Dateline many, many years ago. So it's something I've always been curious about is the Eastern perspective and and it's it's about humility. I mean, when I'm in mountains, when I go up to Nepal, and I just went up recently with my family and took my young kids up there for the first time, 
is a place where I feel just, I feel humbled and I feel in awe and I feel sort of great respect. And, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I feel a sense of the spiritual up there and it's humbling. And I, for me, that's what mountains do. Um, And having spent a lot of time with Sherpa friends in the Sherpa community, I, I sort of, you know, take a lot of what they see and the way that they behave towards the natural environment, not just the mountains, but the rivers and the lakes and and that, you know, they revere them because they are their life sources. And um, so I, I sort of, I'm interested then when I see people come to conquer, I, you know, I don't, um, I don't really like what I see when I see that, I, you know, and I think you'll see some of that in Sherpa and you'll, you'll definitely see some of that point of view in uh, in mountain, yet I also really kind of honour the, the you know the the people who want to explore their own limits, you know, and mm. I think some people do it very beautifully, and 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 I'm also interested in that idea that we are we do feel compelled to test ourselves and to be among mountains and just what form that takes. But I guess the message in the film is, well, you can do that, but you know, do it respectfully. I Indeed. guess if, if, if there is a message here. Yeah, and in the middle of the film, um, there is, I guess, a switchover point. So there's um, a beautiful kind of slow-mo um, section or it kind of, you know, speeds up and then slows down where um, you see skiers flying through the air and um, flipping around and, um, you know, other forms of extreme sport doing similar levels of acrobatics uh, as well as people like Danny McCaskill who's a Scottish uh, cyclist doing some phenomenal things and um, yeah he's particularly (laughs) scary to watch um, you know cycling on very precarious edges yeah yeah yeah. so I mean it does it has that um, you know the beauty of uh, the the humans um, you know testing their limits and it is quite graceful and then um, it then moves into and the music really reflects this. So you have this beautiful vocals um, as well by Satu Vanska, um, and who I believe is a violinist in the ACO. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. Extraordinary talent. Exactly, she's amazing. And then it moves into um, another track which has some electric guitar in it, and it starts showing these uh, these humans crashing into the snow, and you know you see the real harshness um, that is also the flip side of grace and beauty of the flying through the air is what can happen, you know, the other way around. I mean, the, is that really yeah. what you're exploring and in, in the film um, and and how, and I was really interested in how you did set that up and I guess transition between one really beautiful moment where I all, almost was brought to tears because it was so stunning and then you go, whoa, hang on a second, um, you know, yeah. there's also the flip side. That's right. I mean, that particular section um, where things go really crazy is called Madness Bites. And um, and the section immediately before it, the line that you're referring to is, um, you know, a guy, you know, I won't, I won't give it away, but a guy does something very extreme off a cliff mm. and um, with a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and the line says, you know, that, that inspires in us um, forms of insanity and forms of grace. Um, and... You know, to that is to sort of say it's kind of crazy, but it's kind of beautiful. And that was sort of my way of saying, you know, this is, you know, let's just reflect for a moment that there is something kind of quite artful, you know, about what these people are doing in the mountains. They, it is, 
And I've met many of them. It, it, it looks insane on one level, but it is also a beautiful form of creative self-expression on the other. I certainly yeah. know that's the way they see it. Um, yet then when we go into transition into madness bites, what you see there is a lot of just straight out insanity and the narration kind of explores this idea that, um, you, you know, when you get wrapped up in that kind of community, you get spurred on to take bigger and bigger and bigger risks and your appetite just only grows. Um, and to a point where it, it is pretty insane and what some of these people are doing and I think what we see in that section is you see people taking risks and doing things for the sake of doing extreme things and being noticed and being on YouTube and you know getting sponsorship and all of these things rather Mm. than respecting the mountain and I think and that's really when you know perhaps it's it's been taken too far and that we're forgetting you know we're forgetting to respect the mountains and that the environment that we're in. Yeah and And another part that I found interesting uh, where you're exploring the concept of time being different for mountains and for the nature, natural world, um, is that it, and one of the the narrative uh, lines is, uh, they were here long before we were dreamed up and they will watch us leave. And it's... Uh, We were, were, they were here long before we were even dreamed of. Yeah. They they watched us arrive. They will watch us leave. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so... I mean, that's something that's pretty poignant as well, that we, um, you know, they were here long before us and we will probably self-destruct at some point, uh, hopefully not soon. But, you know, then you see volcanoes erupting and there's this stunning, you know, power of the earth as well, um, this strength that is there, not only just from, you know, mountains standing and, and avalanches and that, you know, natural the natural forces of a mountain, but then also the other side, which is, you know, hot molten lava, um, I found that was a really interesting contrast. But how did you feel about the exploration of time and, and humans' feelings of time when you're in a, in a space like a mountain really high up in, in altitude? Do you think that there is um, a, a real experience, a different experience of time in that situation? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in, in certainly in the time that I have, um, spend at high altitude, you know, you do just get a sense of the ancient nature of the earth. And, you know, being in the Himalayas, it's, it's a relatively young environment, um, compared to, you know, for example, Australia. Um, but you do, you do experience time, you know, in a different way. Um, and I think there's a line earlier on in the film which says, in time, warps and bends you know um, you do lose kind of all sense of time um, when you're up certainly very high altitude probably partly because of the lack of oxygen (laughs) the impact of the lack of oxygen on your brain but um, it is a place where time moves at a different pace and that you know really you have no control if the the weather and the environment decides to you know um, you know unleash its fury you know um, you really have no control um, and you just have to get busy trying to survive. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but, yeah, it does. you know, I think that that particular sequence is about just saying, you know, let, let's have some respect. You know, this is mm-hmm. what the mountains are, you know, um, they're ancient, they're powerful, you know, and we are, you know, mere mortals in, in that particular context. 
Mm. And I just want to explore finally with you some of the locations um, that are featured because although Mount Everest is usually the star of any mountain uh, film, there are so many places that um, you know footage has been taken from and also that has been taken by Renan. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the film, it does list a whole range of locations, some of which are Antarctica, there's Australia's included, Greenland, Iceland, Scotland, Pakistan, Switzerland, Tibet, uh, India. I mean, when you were bringing together, um, you know, this, all the different mountains and ways that, of looking at mountains and also types of mountains, was it important for you to have that um, geographical diversity? Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. Um, and somebody asked me to Q&A, actually, oh, I was curious, I wanted to know where we were at different points. And um, yeah. the truth of it is, it will be one minute, you know, within one sequence, we will have traversed, you know, three continents. You know, there'll be, you'll be in Antarctica watching some guy climb something and then suddenly you'll be in the Canadian Rockies and then you'll be in the Himalayas and, you know, then you might be in New Zealand or something like it. it it's more about the ideas and what the footage um, was dictating to us in terms of expressing the ideas that we wanted to express rather than the geographical locations. And so that was very much an editing decision. You know, we decided to do away with, you know, and there will be some sequences where the whole sequence is shot in, you know, Canada, for example, or mm. the Himalayas, but... Um, there are many others where we're just crisscrossing the globe and it was more about um, the ideas um, than it was about those particular geographic locations. Mm. And the music is very immediately responsive to the footage and the different things that are happening as well. So it, it seems like it's very much um, in tandem and, and choreographed to be uh, very much aligned and unified. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the music really... Um, you know, brings it all together and it was always a, a very important part of the equation, obviously. You know, mm. it was it's where this whole project began. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Jennifer, I know you're going to be in Melbourne uh, to for Q&As after the screening of this film. So that's an excellent opportunity for anyone who's interested to pick your brains further about the film. And I'm sure once they've seen it, they'll have many, many more questions uh, to ask yeah. you. So um, just just so people know, uh, the first screening at the Melbourne International Film Festival is on the 12th of August at 1.45 and that's at Hoyts, Melbourne. And then the second one is the day after on the 13th at 11am. So, uh, and you'll be there at both, I believe? Yeah, I believe one of them may have sold out, but I think it's the second one still has some seats available. So, yep. um, yeah, very happy to answer lots more questions and, um, yeah, come and see the film. Yes, please do, because it, it is beautiful um, just to to experience something that many may not experience in their lifetime because they probably won't be um, climbing to the extent that uh, these people are. So I know I speak for myself in that regard. You can check out the trailer and uh, buy tickets on miff.com.au. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us and um, sharing your passion of mountains with us. It's been great to chat. Thanks a lot. You too.
That was film director Jennifer Peedham and uh, she's also known for a film she directed uh, called Sherpa. And this film is called Mountain and as mentioned, it's at the Melbourne International Film Festival and you can check it out, miff.com.au. As I promised, I'm very excited to have with me in the studio uh, Professor Raymond Gator or Ray, um, who has put together a Wednesday lecture series um, this year and it's often, um, it's quite a regular thing every year that we have these lecture uh, series and it's entitled The Intelligentsia in the Age of Trump and uh, Ray who is a professorial fellow at the Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne and he's also Professor Emeritus of Moral Philosophy at King's College in London and he joins me now in the studio. Hi Ray. Hi, hi. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for coming in. I should perhaps add that um, uh, partly because they're paying for this lecture series uh, that I'm also a professorial fellow in the Faculty of Arts uh, at Melbourne University. Excellent. Many hats that you have. Yeah, a free range professor. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's kind of really good and one of the interesting parts about your background. I mean, lots of people would know about Romulus, my father, um, but you, your philosophical expertise and area of focus is moral philosophy. Yes, uh, and aspects of political philosophy that have trailed into law, which is why I'm also in the law school. Yeah. Not that I could teach a first-year course in law, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard sometimes it can be a little bit dry to begin with, but it gets very interesting when there uh, are many ethical dilemmas. Yeah. So we're going to talk about um, in particular, the topic of your lecture, which was truth and truthfulness in the age of Trump. Uh, and it's very topical because, of course, we're constantly confronted with this question of what is truth nowadays. And I know personally, even only five to eight years ago, I felt that there was a certain consensus as to what was truth and evidence and fact. Uh, and that crossed party lines and ideology and now it seems like it's open slather and there really has anyone can pick and choose the facts that they like or you know and whether they are facts or not to support their argument I mean in first of all looking at truth and what truth is to you um, how do we define truth Oh, well, I, I, I don't think it's a matter of defining it, but um, most people um, know what they mean when they ask, look, is what he, he or she said true? Are they, um, in very elementary cases, they said they went to Bendigo yesterday. Is that true? Uh, but what uh, truth comes to depends partly, I think, on the realm of inquiry to which it's applied. So it, it's, it's not just one thing. Uh, and uh, I think the irony of, of the uh, period we're living through at the moment uh, is that um, for a very long time, at least uh, you mentioned Rawlingness, my father, that was published in 1998 and it was then that I started going to writers' festivals. So at least since 1998 and probably earlier, uh, I've heard people say at Writers' Festival, well, you know, there's no such thing really as a fact that would establish the truth of a narrative. Facts are always context-dependent, they're always selected, and so on. Nobody quite followed that through to radical scepticism about fact. 
but the tone of scepticism was in the air. And the same was uh, about truth. I mean, uh, I've heard so many people say, look, if you uh, ask seven people uh, to tell you about their mother, seven siblings to talk about their mother, they'll give you seven different accounts, which, of course, is, is, is often true. And, but the suggestion was that there's no such thing as a true account. And the extraordinary thing is that it seemed to imply there's no such thing as what a person really is like. Which, if that were true, nobody would read biography or autobiography <laughs> or, or history. But again, that kind of scepticism was in the air. And it became the focus of cultural combat in, in, in politics, the right on, uh, in cultural combat calling people on the left. Or at any rate, let's say the kind of people who go to writers' festivals, festivals of ideas and so on, calling them relativists. Though, though I'm sure the people who constantly made that as an accusation had no real idea of what not re- non-relativism uh, would look like. Mm. Uh, and, and the irony, uh, uh, as I said, is that because Trump has so unrelentingly uh, attacked the very notion of a fact insofar as it could be established by people with expertise or competence, the irony is that same group of people who have now embraced... <laughs> robust conceptions of facts and truth. I, I, I think, and I, I welcome that, but it could have a, 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 a negative backlash because the reasons why people were sceptical uh, about certain ideas of truth was in part because they were constantly offered certain paradigms of them as they imply in science. And so the much maligned departments of cultural studies, mm, I mean maligned yes. by uh, cultural warriors on the right, uh, had, had a, a special reason because they're interested in literature in thinking whatever truth comes to in literature, it's not the same as in the sciences. Mm. And now because we have a renewed respect for the sciences, I mean rightly so because of their justified prestige uh, and also because of their practical benefits, I think we're in danger of reinstating that kind of paradigm and imposing it on thought elsewhere about literature for example where it clearly shouldn't apply no so so it the only way i think we can uh, your, your opening question was how would we define truth i think the only uh, way we can think about it is to look at the concepts we use to assess whether we're thinking well or badly about mm. something and if we look at those concepts that and they'll be different for different domains of inquiry I mean, for example, if you're thinking about literature, the, the criticism that your thought is sentimental is a very serious one. The idea of sentimentality has no application when you're thinking about mathematics or physics, for example. So, it, so the, the way to look at it is to look at those concepts that tell us whether we're thinking well or badly, and those concepts will tell us what truth comes to in that kind of inquiry. Sorry, that was a very long answer to your no, question. I think it's necessary because it is a pretty prickly and big question to to open with. Um, but I, referring back to some of the things that you mentioned in your lecture at the beginning that relate to what you've just said is that you do say we need to understand what kind of discourse nourishes democratic practice and what degrades it. And 
if we're looking at um, what you have termed uh, the dignity of politics, which you say some people might scoff at or think is a bit of an oxymoron, mm. um, you know, how do we um, retain or rebuild the integrity that politics and political discourse once had in the context of Trump and the age of Trump? And that's a pretty big yeah, issue. Yeah, well... Uh the Wednesday Lecture Series, ever since uh, the, it started 17 years ago, has been an attempt to kind of create a conversational space in which we could talk about the dignity of politics and ask what that comes to. And never has there been such a degradation of the political realm, as I think, as, in, as, as, as now occurred in America and because of Trump. Uh, I don't think that's an exaggeration. I mean, I mean, some people say in a spirit of urbane worldliness, oh, well, we've seen these things before, but we've never seen anything like this. No one who so shamelessly lies again and again and again, for example. Uh, but so, so it, it's now... It, now it looks like an up, up, uphill battle. But I, I, what we have to... The, the, the difficulty is that it's it's not just concepts; it's it's language, and when uh, ways of speaking begin to die in us, uh, when we can no longer talk of politics or anything else as a vocation, for example, but always reduced to talking of it as a job or a career, and therefore can't properly give an account of the obligations intrinsic to it, to to it. Uh, if I think of my job as a teacher, for example, now if I just think of it as a job or even a career or a profession, I can't, I think, uh, fully understand what the obligations I have to students, the way I have to rise to them, to those obligations I mean, and to the students, and they do it. Uh, with those concepts, profession, career, job, they're pretty mediocre, I think. Mm. So, so uh, we we need to try to find a way back to speaking in a living way of honour in politics, of dignity in politics, uh, uh, of citizenship, for goodness sake, instead of just being taxpayers, of governing rather than running a country as though it were an enterprise. Uh, if, if I can give an example of how we lost that, I remember when years ago when we were arguing about whether we should privatise prisons. The argument was entirely about whether that would make the running of prisons more efficient. There was no discussion about whether it was the proper thing to do for citizens to hand over their fellow citizens to a private profit-making company for punishment. It was, and, and that showed that we no longer had a serious concept of what it is to be a citizen as opposed to a taxpayer who wanted efficient results for their money. Mm. And so economics has dominated the debates and to the detriment. Com completely. Yeah. I, I was really struck when uh, someone as, as lucid and intelligent about politics as uh, Barack Obama was running against Romney and Romney was constantly claiming that he would make the better president because he was a successful businessman. 
uh, Obama didn't ask him, why do you think that would qualify you to be a president? Why do you think it would even qualify you to be an economics minister? Not that they have ministers there. Right? Yes, yeah. Uh, because uh, economic concerns are again, or should be, embedded in a language of citizenship mm. rather than the running of an enterprise, which is a business. Mm, indeed. It really... Um diminishes our humanity in a way to only focus or solely focus on that Well, aspect. it diminishes that aspect of our, our humanity which realises itself in a political identity. Mm. Yeah, and so I want to talk about now some of the um, aspects that you have written about in terms of Trump as well as the lecture. Um you mentioned that, and I'm sure many have been guilty of this, that when Donald Trump announced his candidacy, many saw it as a joke, um, that this is just hilarious and ridiculous to even think fanciful that this man would become president of the United States, um, you know, one of the most, uh, well, powerful nations in the world, certainly the most powerful democratic nation. Um, and you say that observers in the media, as well as the political establishment, took Trump literally, but not seriously, whereas those who secured his victory, such as the Republicans and the vote, those who voted for him, did not take him literally, but they took him seriously. Yes, that wasn't so much my comment as quoting a comment by mm. a CNN correspondent um, during his campaign, and she said that that and she said and it was often repeated to try to reassure us uh, that the idea was uh, look he says these outrageous things but really he doesn't quite mean them mm. uh, and when he gets into office uh, he'll change and even if he doesn't himself want to change the institutions of democracy in America will rein him in all that proof false completely false he hasn't changed uh, and the most important institutions of democracy, in this case the Senate and the Congress, have not done so. Mm. Though, though, thankfully, although we've yet to see how it will all pan out, the law, at least the leading institutions, uh, stood up uh, when he proposed that Muslim uh, travel ban. But also under extreme pressure. And, yeah, under extreme pressure. Mm. Those institutions seem to be a lot more fragile than people had thought. Uh, it seems to me. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you have said that, and I think this really draws out the issue, um, you know, and the difference, I guess, in political discourse before and, and now is that you say it is one thing to be defeated by people with whom one strongly disagrees, which I guess is before, and it is another to be defeated by someone who eroded the conditions of accountability. Now, is that the responsibility you believe politicians have? Because there's something, you talk about academics having a responsibility to, to protect the integrity of their disciplines. Do politicians have a responsibility to protect the integrity of political discourse. Yes, yeah, well, well, def definitely they do. When I was speaking about academics, and one of the things I wanted to do in the lecture uh, was was to suggest that, uh, as against uh, what a lot of people think, that uh, academics have no responsibility by virtue of being academics to be publicly involved, even if they're political or moral philosophers, I think. I mean, people will find that paradoxical. But but the way they... they, they um, uh, protect the integrity of, of political discourse is by is by you know, enabling their students to see how important truth is. 
uh, and then those students obviously go into the public world and that that's how they do it. And I, I, I think in the case of writers, again, I, contrary to what a lot of people think, I don't think writers, because they are writers, have a responsibility to get involved in politics, not even to protect fellow writers when they're being persecuted, I, I think. Uh, but what they do have is, is, is or the way they exercise their responsibility uh, is, is to uh, nourish in us a feel for language and tone uh, to prevent the language from being degraded. Degraded in the way that Don Watson, for example, yes. is really good at always bringing out. Mm. Right? And that's the way that... that writers exercise their responsibility mm. even when they have no interest whatsoever in being involved in politics. Uh, so um, in, in the case of politicians, well, one ha it, it doesn't look as though they're going to do it themselves. The, the, the citizens, their citizens, the people they govern have to rise up and say, rise up, I don't mean with a, with a barricade, but, but have to, 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 to make absolutely clear that constantly being referred to as a taxpayer is a degradation of their uh, political standing, of what it means to have a political identity, especially in a democracy. Mm, well, we're in a representative democracy and these are our elected representatives. That's so right. they have a huge amount of responsibility and accountability individually to us. Um, and that's something that I know I've spoken with um, Richard Dennis about, um, who's a, a chief economist at the Australian Institute, who tries to pull out some of this economics um, that we continually reinsert into policy to confuse people and make them feel... Um, disenchanted and, and disempowered. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the kind of um, failure that you think uh, or that you've mentioned seems to have um, been inserted into the American context and you say that it's something more serious than ignorance um, and that it's a specific kind of cognitive failure and a lack of judgment. And obviously that's yeah. something which a lot of... Um, you know, not everyone is necessarily great at, but this is an extreme case of a lack of judgment and a um, a detachment from reality in some regards. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've wanted to say that, um, well, first of all, just harking back to what we, we spoke about earlier, uh, we've got something much more serious to deal with in America than uh, a country passionately divided in opinion. Uh, there's the erosion of the very concept of, of a fact uh, because there's an erosion of the concept of authority and expertise. Those people being uh, dismissed as um, uh, uh, peddlers of fake news and elites uh, and so on. But, uh, but there's also something else which, which, which shows itself in, in the beliefs of, of some of Trump's uh, supporters... Uh, uh, the belief that he's not uh, he's not uh, a really an American citizen, for example, that he was uh, involved in a plot to ensure that he remained president for God knows how long, a kind of coup, and other uh, crazy things of that kind. Uh, I, I say in in the lecture that to believe such things is a bit like believing that Elvis is still alive and working for Trump which unfortunately I suspect he would have been mm -hmm. if he were alive. I say that as someone who was a great Elvis fan. Uh, 
And and to, to think that is to be a crank. And one of the things I, I, I try to argue is to, to call someone a crank needn't be just a term of abuse. It means that the person lacks the kind of judgment such that when they talk about evidence and so on, it's like a parody of the real thing. The clearest case, I mean, flat earthers, for example, are not particularly ignorant. I'm sure if I had a discussion with flat earthers, they'd wipe the floor with me. I'd talk, you know, about ships coming over the horizon or satellite pictures and so on. And they, in a kind of parody of serious discourse, would mount this argument and that argument and that argument. But all of it, as it were, having lost touch with reality. Another example, although in important ways different, but conceptually very similar, is if you try to argue with someone who's paranoid, for example. They don't lack the capacity for rigorous thinking, you know, uh, at all. You, you argue with them and you're often a hiding, on a hiding to nothing. Uh, but it's absolutely clear that the concept that, that really applies here is not ignorance or, or merely false opinion. Mm. It's the concept of having lost touch with reality. Mm. And the difference between cranks and people who are mentally ill in the way that paranoids are is only, I shouldn't say only, this is a big difference, that in the case of cranks, it's often limited to one area of discourse. Flat earthers can be entirely in touch with reality about all sorts of other things. Whereas a paranoid takes everything, as it were, into the realm of his or il- her illness. The paranoia threatens a conversation about anything. Yeah. And then, and when we're talking about some of these Trump voters in, in that context, you say that, I mean, they have been somewhat diminished and their intelligence has been questioned and their education um, at levels and status has also been questioned. And you have mentioned um, previously about uh, the need for there to be, you know, a basic level of education and that being university educated is not something that should distinguish anyone um, in their ability to be, think critically in yeah. this kind of circumstance. Yeah, I, 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 I think... Um What's been underestimated when people talk about the way that working class whites, for example, have been attracted to Trump is not just that they're poor. And it's not only, although this is a very important thing, that the work they took pride in uh, and felt was part of building up a nation in which they took pride uh, is now not taken seriously. And uh, it's also that they've been condescended to so radically, which came out so clearly uh, when Hillary Clinton called them a basket of deplorables. She apologised for that, but but nobody believed she meant it. And the people to whom she referred knew that she really believed it and that's what mattered to them. And they thought that the people who voted for her, the college educated as opposed to the non-college educated, in their hearts thought much the same thing. And I think that can unleash a rage if it continues for a long time, a, a rage that is, is, is so ferocious that it cares nothing for the consequences. Because I think that's the question one really has to ask. How come, if one was wanting to talk to one of these Trump supporters, if you could imagine a conversation with them, which is really important because we always talk about what they believe. They, we don't mm. imagine ourselves actually asking one of them, for God's sake, what are you doing? I know you're in. Uh, I know how terrible things are for you, but you say you love this country, and you're going to make the country a hostage to this this man who's clearly mentally unstable. 
and who's poured a can of excrement on all the conventions that make for civil decency. Is that what you want to do? I think this, and I, 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 I don't know what the answer would be, but, but that's partly why I want to say part of the answer uh, lies in the way in which they've been treated with, with urbane condescension by the people they, they call the elites. And mm. much the same, is, I think, uh, is, is true in this country. Definitely. And... and uh, and uh, it, they are right. You see, what, the, the, when they when they're hostile to people, they call experts. In one way, it's bad because of the undermining of the concept of a fact. But partly, what's going on too is that they want to say, "Hey, there's a big difference between expertise and wisdom." You know, having a university education which might make you an expert who can establish the facts about science or a good journalist as opposed to a hack journalist, etc., none of that guarantees that you're wise rather than foolish. Uh, and in that, they're absolutely right. Mm. They're absolutely right in that. And the things that are needed for a reasonably intelligent public discourse can be taught, by the, can be taught sufficiently by the time someone is in the middle years of secondary schooling, for example, taught sufficiently such that nobody would have the right to dismiss their opinion merely because they didn't go on to university. I, d- I don't think we do that. Uh, I don't think, we, but it can can easily be done. Mm. It shouldn't be a matter of what of, of going to university. I feel that very strongly because my father had four years of, of primaries uh, or four years of education uh, and uh, I learned a hell of a lot uh, that appears now in my writing mm. uh, from him rather than from books that I've been reading. Yeah, and it is there is a rise and rise of, and a prizing of, by corporations and employers of a university education that um, that has been unparalleled really uh-huh. nowadays. Now, picking up on that and the condescension that you're talking about and also the lack of dialogue between those who are experts and Trump voters. Um, You mentioned in your lecture that Wittgenstein um, said that the face is the best window to the soul and then you go on to talk about the importance of speaking and talking Mm. and although language is part of that, it's actually um, something much more physical and um, human and face-to-face and interactive and that... I think is one of the most important things you bring into this discussion is the need to talk to one another. Yeah, um, I, 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 I use an expression sometimes where, where, uh, calling someone to seriousness, um, which I think uh, is, is intrinsic to the idea of conversation when we speak of conversation in a rather loaded sense as a real conversation or when somebody says, oh, at last someone really to talk to. A talk is, it's interesting there. Nobody says at last someone really to text to. Right? No. <laughs> <laughs> or tweet well, on Facebook. Yeah, or tweet on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, and and um, uh, I, I, I think this has to be fa- face to face. Uh, I don't know if I can't remember if I did it in in the lecture or not, but I've in something I've added to this when I've written. I'm just trying to finish a piece for Meandrin, which is based on those lectures. When I was uh, 
it was during the time of the Tampa uh, when uh, uh, Beasley was fighting Howard in the election and uh, there were detention centres and kids had been behind razor wire for up to five years and they'd seen uh, their parents uh, sometimes attempting suicide or sewing their lips together and so on. And I was in the country renting a cottage, finishing a book, and I used to go sometimes to dinner in the pub and I was arguing with the locals about about this and and they would often say well they're queue jumpers and you you can't make make an exception for the kids and 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 so on and i'd say well okay but do we have to be so cruel and they say oh they repeat their queue jumpers and so on and i and and i noticed they would step from you know from side to side physically and i i used to i i used to have to hold them to the spot and look them in the eye and say, look, I know it's all very difficult, but tell me just, let's focus just on one thing. Can we treat children this way? And and it was important to look, and they stood, they looked me in the face uh, and eventually they said no. And then I did the same thing and said, well, what about the adults? Again, it's complicated, but do we have to treat them so cruelly? And again, moving from... And, and it was a kind of expression of how important the body is in, in all this. Mm. It is. And um, and I think that it also is really interesting. You, um, in, your, in a piece that you wrote for The Conversation, talk about um, dialogue and... Uh, and Obviously, Socrates and Plato are the great, <laughs> the greats at dialogue. Um, and you talk about a particular dialogue um, called Gorgias. Gorgias. Uh, uh, Gorgias. Yeah. Yeah. And basically, you were saying that Socrates um, announces his affirmation that it is better to suffer evil than to do it. And it has haunted Western thought about relations between morality and politics. Are we all complicit um, in in that kind of behaviour and treatment of asylum seekers, is that essentially doing evil by standing by and not changing things? Uh, I, um, yeah, well, I, I, I think uh, our treatment of asylum seekers is abominable. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's just, just uh, mor- morally terrible uh, and there's no excuse whatsoever for it. Um but but the, uh, but the, the dialogue I refer to, uh, in which Socrates makes that affirmation, uh, is a dialogue whose bitter tone has often been noticed because in it, Plato raises the suspicion, even and uh, in it Plato does, uh, and you see it in the way he depicts his character. People forget that he was a great great artist as well as a great philosopher, and it's the character that he's given us uh, that has haunted our thought, not not the real historical Socrates. Mm. Uh, but but it raises the question as whether at some critical points a politician who is seriously serious about her vocation mm. might have to say, morally I cannot do this, but to be true to the responsibilities of my vocation I must. And it's been the thought that there are some cases, and it's usually when what's at stake is genuinely the national, in, mm-hmm. not the national interest as we narrowly define it, but when what's at, what is at stake can be the life of a people, their language, their institutions, and so on. We know that in those cases, 
politicians will do morally terrible things, we, we, we just, as it's been a fact that they do. It's also a fact that their citizens expect it of them. They, they, they're inclined to say, if you feel... We understand that morally you think you can't do it. If you can't do it, you should never have become a politician. Uh, and, and what we have here is not so much a conflict within morality, like a moral dilemma, because by definition, a moral dilemma is 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 is, is you, you can't predict which way someone will go. But in in the case of politics, we expect politicians to know which way they will go if it comes to the crunch mm. and act against not only morality but also law, international law. So 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 uh, you know uh, so we have these three realms. Uh, I call them realms with the ethical because I think the, the ethics is thinking about how to live, and morality is one part of that. Mm. Thinking about politics and law is another part of that. So I think of law, politics, and morality as as realms of the ethical, in all sorts of ways interdependent with one another. Way. In all sorts of ways, answerable to one another, but sometimes irreconcilably in conflict. That I think, anyway, is 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 uh, what uh, is at stake in that dialogue. And I, I mentioned it in that piece in the conversation because I had I had I was in a seminar uh, at King's College London just after September 11th, uh, and we're, for ten weeks discussing that dialogue with students and everybody knew what was at stake because what was the argument already in the air was shall we torture, should we torture terrorists if it would save many lives but if, if the information they could give us would save many lives. So the atmosphere in that seminar was electric uh, because everybody knew what was at stake in this incredible affirmation that it's better to suffer evil than to do it. Uh, and uh, it's, I, 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 I say in that piece in the conversation, it's wonderful that a dialogue, and that this was one of the wonderful things about the humanities, that a dialogue written uh, 2,000 years ago should still be able to electrify uh, a, a seminar politically in a way that is completely relevant uh, mm. And and in fact, not only relevant, but in all sorts of ways, shows up the shallowness of the times. Indeed, and um, make one feel quite uncomfortable with the reality and the dilemmas that we face often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, Ray, thank you very much for coming in That's to great, talk about great, this. Great pleasure. Thank you. And it's my pleasure. And I, I want to make sure that people can check out the lecture series if they want to go along. Now, this is um, every Wednesday uh, in. August. Yeah. So um, there's a couple coming up. We've obviously had you speak and Tim Lynch, who's yeah. the director of the Graduate School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Melbourne University. And then coming up um, is uh, Guy Rundle talking yeah. about the rise of populists. That's right. Um, then we've got Sunja Pahuja. S- Sanja. Sanja Pahuja uh, on international law in the age of Trump, which will be fascinating. Uh, and then we've got Helen Razor talking about Trump and the death of the media class. Yeah, that will be fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. And then finally, Katerina Gator on climate change in the age of Trump, which yes, is obviously so. hugely topical at the yeah. moment. Um, 
Thank you so much, oh, Ray. Well, thank you very much, Amy, for having me. My pleasure. Uh, that was Ray Gator, who uh, is based at the University of Melbourne, among um, other colleges and universities. He's at the Melbourne Law School, a professor, professorial fellow there, as well as at the Faculty of Arts and also Professor Emeritus of Moral Philosophy at King's College in London. Uh, and the lecture series, um, if you want to look it up, Google it. It's called The Intelligentsia in the Age of Trump and it's hosted by Ray. Yes, you are listening to 3RRRFM and this is Amy Mullins on Uncommon Sense and I have with me in the studio Dr Isabel Crombie who is Assistant Director at the National Gallery of Victoria as well as the co-curator of Brave New World. Hi Isabel. Hi Amy, it's lovely to be here. It's great to have you Thank here. You. Thank you. And congratulations on the exhibition. Um, it seems like like it's, you know, we, we've seen Art Deco explored in various ways and it has been um, there at the National Gallery in previous exhibitions, I recall seeing a lot of mm-hmm. furniture and decorative arts um, and Art Deco. But in the 1930s in Australia, um, you know, a, a lot of what springs to mind is the Great Depression um, and, you know, sadness and also it being an interwar period. So there's a lot of um, turbulence and confusion and uh, shock after, particularly shell shock, um, after World War One. So there's a lot of um, images and feelings that it might conjure up for people. But taking our cue culturally from uh, the title Brave New World, which references obviously the book um, by Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. Um, it was really fascinating for me when I was reading the catalogue to see that uh, actually after it had been imported into Australia um, and it was published in 1932, it became a prohibited import uh, that same year because um, it was indecent apparently. It uh, it really um, contravened the Indecency Act and uh, and that existing copies were burned. Yeah. Does that yes, sound like the Australia we all know and love? Uh, well, it's a strange... <laughs> It's a strange thing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I think it was to do with the um, kind of forthright depiction of sexuality in the book was the reason that it was that it was banned because actually what it was, um, Aldous Huxley's book, was a real plea about um, the downside of eugenics. Eugenics or that kind of pseudoscience of selective breeding at that time was a very big thing, as you say, Australia was coming out of the First World War. There was a lot of discussion about how the nation should progress, given there'd been this feeling of rupture between the past and the present. And many people at that time felt that the way that it could go forward was through, um, there's no nice way of saying it, breeding a certain type of Australian. So, yes, we did pick that title as being a very resonant title for this show, which is quite complex interrogation of of art and society in the 30s. But of course, we also picked that title because it was a photograph that Max Dupaine took, not just once, but twice. He made a photograph in the 19, in 1935 he called Brave New World. And at that time, it was quite a provocative thing because the book had been banned. And then he returned to the topic in 1938 when the book came back into circulation again. So I guess it just shows that artists were, at that period, they really had their finger on the pulse of what was happening in Australia. And as you say... 
it was not just a period of um, Art Deco and that kind of utopian impulse, but it was also a period when the Great Depression had made its mark so profoundly. Yeah, and we'll move into Max Dupain very soon because I'm really excited to um, pick your brains on him given sure. your uh, <laughs> huge and enormous expertise in that area. Um, but I want to draw out something that relates back to Huxley, um, which is also highlighted in the catalogue, and it's about um, the the skyscrapers and its... I guess symbolism. Um, it can. It could also. It's a symbol of hope, but it was also uh, quite scary or looming across a city. Mm. Um, and the Manchester Unity Building is um, one of those buildings that is explored uh, in the exhibition. There's a great poster of it, um, a huge poster actually, uh, by Percy Tromph. Yes. Um, from the 1930s and obviously the Manchester Unity Building is a pretty iconic building in Melbourne anyway but it does glisten in the sun. I did take a photo one day after <laughs> the rain and it had this beautiful mm. golden sheen to it in the sun. When this kind of um, new architecture was being built amongst restrictions, particularly height restrictions, what was the sense that you were trying to provide in this exhibition around the architecture and how that was an expression of the time and the changes that were happening? Sure. Well, it's it's what you say. It was a, it was a very symbolic thing. It dominated the landscape. It dominated the, um, the urban landscape of Melbourne. Um, for many people, that was the highest they'd ever been. And once you got to the top, there was this incredible view over Melbourne that you hadn't seen in that way before. But it also casts enormous shadows over the city. So it's domineering both as a symbol of optimism, but also on that kind of flip side. And so I guess that's really what in this show... Um, we set up this kind of juxtaposition between the utopian and the dystopian. And in fact, even the way it's designed on the right-hand side, there's the utopian city on the left-hand side, the dystopian. So um, there are these, you know, it's a period in which uh, the decade is bookended by the Great Depression at one end and the war at the other. And in between, people are looking at how to um, kind of progress society. Mm. And uh, for some, technological progress, of which skyscrapers were such an enormous part, um, signalled this kind of utopian way forward. Um, And for others, it was actually about um, a darker view of modernity, the things that it did to the body, living Mm. in a city that where sunshine was cut off, um, living in a city that was much more fast-paced. What did that do to people? So it's really those twin things that you see expressed through the art and the architecture and the design of the period. Yeah. And, I mean, you've said, or it's quoted in this, this catalogue that the Manchester Unity Building was seen as, quote, a modern miracle <laughs> um, <laughs> and that it was it had Melbourne's first escalator, which yes, had joyrides. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, my father, who recently passed away, I asked him about this building and he... Yeah. He said as a kid, he thought it was the most extraordinary thing to go into the city, to go up to the top story of this building. I mean, it's impossible to kind of conjure up those memories today. But Mm. of course, there's a whole generation of people who do look at that in their childhood. I mean, one other other great technological marvel of the period, which is worth drawing out as well, is the... um, is the Harbour Bridge. And, you know, when the Harbour Bridge was opened in 1932, many people referred to it as the Iron Lung Mm. because it employed so many people at a time when 
you know, 1932, the worst um, of the depression had hit. 32% of the population was out of work. So at the same time that you have this extraordinary um, bridging of, literally bridging (laughs) of the Sydney Harbour through this amazing, uh, incredible technological wonder, at the same time, Australia is in the midst of this really intense um, depression. Mm. And that brings me to one of my favourite artists, uh, Grace Cossington-Smith, who has a wonderful painting in this exhibition. Um, And what was it titled again? I've forgotten. It's called Bridge in Curve. That's right. And so it's it's really playing up that um, beautiful kind of sweeping curve Mm. of the bridge. And it's unfinished in the Mm. painting because obviously it was under construction when and she's painting. Yes. So um, she and many other artists of the time picked up on those things such as the bridges and the buildings and um, in particular the cars and the trains, mm-hmm. the spirit of progress, the great train in Melbourne that was launched during this time. There's a little poster in the show which I love because it shows it like this sort of art deco kind of monster charging through <laughs> charging through the landscape. Oh, um, Yes. I think it's that one, Spirit of Progress. Is it that one? It is, it is. Sorry, I'm just reading it out so you can see. Victorian Railways present... The spirit of progress. Even the, even the name of it, you know, says yeah. uh, says much about the utopian impulse at the time. And um, I guess one of the things we've done in this show, I mean, that particular image is quite deco. Mm, but in is. this show, we, we've looked at uh, kind of all of the art that was produced during this period. So the conservative manifestations, mm. you know, abstraction starts to come in, surrealism, expressionism. So we've been quite... To, for want of a better word, Catholic in the choices of of art that we've included. Yeah, and one of the I guess segues into an exploration of womanhood and the modern woman mm. before we get on to with the body and mm-hmm. and that is there's a video playing um, which is kind of like an ad I guess. Yes, and it's fascinating to watch. <laughs> I was kind of disturbed and was writing down the measurements that they had down as you know her bust and her hips and her you know, and it was like she was being judged as to whether she was the right body type for that period and that lingerie and um, this new technology that they have can alter your physical type to fit that. And we do see then Max Dupain doing uh, advertisements around that for women. Yeah, well, the modern woman, I guess, uh, you know, women during the First World War started to enter the workforce in a different kind of way. During the 1920s, there was the whole flapper era. By the 30s, um, a proportion of Australian women are living on their own in um, the new apartments which are being built at the time. They're working, they're sort of delaying having children or not having children. They're becoming artists, they're going out to nightclubs. Um, advertisers adore them because they're starting to market all sorts of labour-saving saving devices to them. And the photograph that you talked of by Max Dupain, which is a ripper, Isn't shows it, yeah. um, this woman in a beautiful kind of um, long gown standing beside a man also dressed uh, for nighttime. And in between them is a refrigerator. Fridge, yeah. <laughs> so it's like the fridge becomes this sort of bit player in a Hollywood film noir. Yeah. Um, but it just speaks to the kind of the glamour 
that was involved in this. So I guess as part of all of this, you know, the body of the woman becomes quite different in the 30s. Um, people talk about her being slim and straight and athletic. Yeah. Um, and if you didn't, if you weren't born with that body, you could then apply modern technology to kind of whip you into shape. So mm. the film you talk about is uh, for um, a corset. Um, somebody described it to me actually as being like um, a lesbian uh, love affair, the film, because it's quite this intimate it is very. situation in which the two women are sitting and she's kind of strapping her into this kind of corset. Yeah. I must say I hadn't seen it that way. but No, um, but she, and she's calling the, the lingerie maker to let her know her precise measurements yes. so they could make sure that it was going to fit her perfectly and then they're going to try it on and it was this very elaborate process. It was definitely a process. It's not like DJs now, is it? No. You know, when you go <laughs> to try on a pair of undies or something, they just get thrown at you. Yeah, but, does um, that fit? Yes, it was, no. It was a whole kind of thing and, you know, the modern woman was, was loved by advertisers but she was also highly criticised. Mm. So uh, one of the writers at the time, William Bailbridge, um, really criticised her for denying her role as to quote him the sacred vessel of maternity uh, so yeah. at a time when uh, population rates were going down it was really seen that women who chose to live on their own work were being selfish they weren't mm. getting on the with the role for which they were here which was to encourage the development of um, a kind of a new Australia and you know it's fascinating at this time because people talk about an actually new body that is coming out of this sort of eugenic impulse. And that new body is very athletic and very fit, premised on Anglo-Celtic stock. Mm. So the Aboriginal body falls into a kind of different category according to this scenario. But uh, men and, and women... Um, definitely uh, are looked at in a very different way in this period. Yes. Mm. And um, in some in a piece that you were writing, you said that, uh, and we'll move into Max Dupain because I guess his photography is one of the greatest expressions of this mm, it is. feeling, is that um, he often focused on a vitalistic understanding of the sexually differentiated energies of men and women in the 1930s, associating women with nature and obviously thereby mm-hmm. childbearing and more curvaceous figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and also and then with men in particular with physical activities such as the discus thrower which is a very um, fascinating uh, image and throughout his his photographs I mean most of these are nudes um, but they're montages and they're juxtaposed against a whole range of modern Mm. life and modernity. Mm. In terms of the works that you looked at um, to express this issue of eugenics and and the the concerns that as you've written modern life was a depleting eugenic force Mm. and there was this conservative dialogue particularly men actually um you know talking about women's roles and then depicting women in certain ways i mean how did you bring together these kind of photographs and which ones do you think um, highlight it best? I mean, I have my personal favourites, but I wanted to go to you first before I pick any out. Sure. Well, look, I think it probably makes more sense, this whole discussion, if we go back just a tiny bit to Max's father, because Max's father was one of the first um, physical educators in Australia. He set up a gymnasium, he had an enormous library, and he was um, a dyed-in-the-wool eugenicist. So he wrote about it, he wrote about it as the sort of way forward. He was very critical about modern men and women for for the way that they were living. And so, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that 
Max is a eugenicist. I would just say that a lot of that um, kind of discourse about body culture becomes very apparent in his work. So Max always downplayed uh, the intellectual side of what it was that he did. He said he was instinctual. He said he was spontaneous. But um, it's a little bit kind of... um, disingenuous of him because in fact he was enormously well read and one of the books that he picked up in particular was Henri Bergson's um, Creative Evolution. So Bergson had a philosophy called Ilan Vital which was about the the essential spark that he believed animated people and he did talk about these um, essences in men and women sexually differentiated. So a number of artists in the period picked up on this. Max picks up on it in very particular ways. So he believes really that Australians have disconnected from their classical past and that what we needed to do to to get back that kind of um, essential energy was to reassociate ourselves with um, nature and in particular the beach. Mm. So I guess one of the works that I particularly love of Max's, which is very, very wacky, is um, a nighttime landscape of a city with twinkling little lights and over the top of it at the back is montage a giant woman's breast. Yes, that's actually <laughs> so, my favourite too. Is it? Yeah, oh, well, I was going to pick that out. It's so strange. Isn't but, it? Um, it's very you know, odd. It refers back to uh, a painting from the 19th century which mm. uh, was of the goddess of the night and the breast milk expressed from her became the stars. And so Max is is really saying that the nighttime stars have been replaced in modern life by the twinkling electrical um, lights of the modern city. Mm. So, you know, you can see just in this one photograph, it's a it's a very complex kind of intellectual construct as well as a, a kind of a very strange looking result. But it yeah. does make no sense if you don't really look at the background. You're also looking at another photograph there, I can tell, which is of the naked pregnant woman yes. by Max Dupain standing in the middle of two busts of Venus. There, it goes back to Baylor Bridge's statement about women being the sacred vessels of maternity. So this is really what Max is showing here, saying mm. that there's a genetic link between the past and the present which we're in danger of, of disconnecting from or severing. So mm. this is really... He had a, a quite kind of gloomy prognosis in some ways about modern life. Um, where he does get much more optimistic is where you see him photographing people on the beach. Yes. Mm. And there's obviously his most famous one, I think it's, is it Sunbaker? Sunbaker, yeah. yes. Um, which is hugely iconic and that's in the exhibition mm. as well as um, the men who are, or lifesavers who are marching almost on the beach in a yeah. synchronised kind of way. Um you know, so men and women are depicted in in these mm-hmm. kind of ways. It's certainly not exclusive to women. Um, but I found it very interesting that you then had across the other side of the exhibition space, um, directly opposite uh, a painting by Dorothy Thornhill, um, which is you know, a bit different and her body um, is very muscular and she's very confident mm-hmm. and she has modern her modern hairstyle. Um, her na- the title is Resting Diana and that's referring to, although it still has classical references, it's referring to a very different point of inspiration. Yeah, it's interesting you pick up that one because, um, you know, in this period it, it was 
very radical and not really acceptable to show naked people unless it was connected to the classics. You kind of um, diffused it of its eroticism or sexuality by by connecting it to the sort of pure realm of the, the classical gods. Mm. Dorothy Thorne who breaches that because she shows the woman uh, who's naked and incredibly muscular, kind of quite fierce. You know, she's a warrior woman. Yeah. But she shows her with bobbed hair and um, so it's got that... Uh, immediate connection to contemporary life. And because it had that, she really got into a, a lot of trouble for it. It was quite a controversial mm. work, but it's um, it's a fantastic work. It's and I great, think yeah. it then sits along quite nicely some of the Jean Brune Norton sculptures of the period, which are also included mm. um, in the show, which pick up those ideas of this kind of almost like Amazonian race of men and women who are populating um, Australia. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely at least a contrast to the kind of woman as passive uh, childbearer and yes. then this is kind of the more active, um, vital force of nature that yes, a woman could be. Uh, one critic when looking at the show said that they all, even when they're dressed or undressed, um, feel like they have armour. And I think that's a really good way of, of describing them, that this new race of Australians are kind of armed in a way. And I guess, you know, as the as the decade progresses and it becomes more apparent that Australia is going to be drawn into another world war, that's when photographs such as those of the Lifesaver take on a very militaristic feel to them. Mm. You know, Lifesavers are kind of out there to save people and they go on drills and they they march past in parades and they're dressed certain ways so you can see the link being made quite clearly between them and sort of cannon fodder for the for the war that's about to come so it it starts to take on this very um poignant uh feel and really very much connected to the australian government's moves at the time towards what they called national fitness it was felt that australia's um, declining birth rates and the lack of general health and fitness of the population meant that we were getting into a very difficult situation with a new world war about to happen and so they became much more proactive about um, fitness in this period and that filters through into um, the work of, you know, not only um, the painters and the photographers but as we show in this work, those who are making films and Mm. decorative arts and um, even sound. Yes. You know, there's a section in there about radios, which is yeah, one of my favourites. <laughs> it's a very good collection of radios. Oh, it's a fabulous collection. Yeah. They look like little pieces of architecture, they you do. know, like Art Deco buildings. Yeah. And um, it was an Australian business because Australia was uh, protected during that period. Um, and so those radios were made in this country using mm. the new Bakelite um, plastics, which enabled mm. them. Mm. And just to close out the discussion, because I think it highlights this shift from optimism to concern and mm-hmm. m- moving towards World War Two, is there's some fabulous port- self-portraits by Albert Tucker, oh, yes. which are just so revealing. You yeah. see this beautiful, handsome man who is kind of looking slightly off into the distance um, and with a little bit of a smile and slowly he has hollow eyes and his face becomes, um, you know, more and more mangled and slightly cubist Mm. in appearance. And that seemed to me to be quite revealing of this Mm. whole discussion around utopia and dystopia and health and ill health. Mm. Um, And it just was also just very interesting to make comparisons between them. What what was your intention with that? Well, precisely what you say. It's, it's, we really wanted to show the kind of psychological 
aspects of um, this period that, you know, it affected people physically. There's a reconceptualization of, of the body, but it also applies to the psyche too. So mm. it's in this room of artists who are taking these self-portraits. And um, Tucker is um, amazing because it does show his sort of disin- psychological disintegration as, as the war approaches. Um, so, you know, it's a very passionate, very contested decade. And what I hope with this show is that we give people a really immersive experience of the 30s, but also mm. make that link to today as well. I think many reporters are talking about that in terms of the way that um, nations are isolating themselves, not looking at internationalism, but are limiting their view to the nationhood, yeah. that there are actually some really interesting links to today and I guess some timely lessons Very as well. Much. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's just really fascinating to move through the range of styles and subject matter mm. as well. And we've only just covered off on, you know, almost half, maybe not even, yeah. of this exhibition. <laughs> it's, it's a very rich show, actually, yeah. in many ways. Yeah. So um, certainly uh, highly recommend checking it out to get the full experience. When does it, um, when is it on until? It's on until October. And one program that your listeners might be interested in is that we're recreating a ballet of the period from 1939 by Gertrude Boldenweiser called Demon Machine Mm. and that's happening over the next couple of days so they could just get on the NGV website and check it out. It's free. They can come along. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, Well, this is at the NGV Australia so that's in Federation Square just to remind anyone, don't get mixed up Um, and it's called Brave New World. Mm. Thank you so much, Isabel, for joining me. Oh, it's a complete pleasure. Thank you. Wonderful to chat. That was Dr Isabel Crombie who's Assistant Director at the National Gallery of Victoria and co curator of this exhibition Brave New World and definitely um, you should check it out it brings together so many aspects of culture and design and art and architecture of the time to be a really rich picture of the complexity and sometimes contradictions that existed at that time. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.